from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is Ag Day. Saving steps when it comes to sampling soil moisture. Can get an almost an instant map of the soil moisture distribution in his field. The amazing technology that could soon save you both time and money. How many farms are family owned these days and what are they growing? We have a new snapshot as the future farm bill comes into focus. The Senate Ag Committee holds a hearing on research in the new farm bill. What lawmakers say must absolutely be included in the next bill. Right now on Ag Day. Good morning, I'm Clinton Griffiths, the Senate Ag Committee, moving forward with a new farm bill focusing on research and education. For every dollar invested in agricultural research, the U.S. economy reaps $20 in benefits. And as Ag Day's Michelle Rook reports, there may be consequences without this investment. Clinton, there's consensus among the agricultural industry as well as members of the Senate Ag Committee that more money needs to be invested in ag research in the next farm bill. Committee members stress the need for innovations in agriculture that are climate smart and keep U.S. farmers competitive globally. Chairwoman Debbie Stabenow says the U.S. is falling behind on ag research support. In recent years, funding for public agricultural research here in the U.S. has declined, which is concerning. Meanwhile, China has quintupled its investment in public agricultural research since 2000 and now invests twice as much as the U.S. does. USDA Undersecretary Shavonda Jacobs-Young says federal investment in ag research has declined by a third in the last two decades. This decline in investments means we are missing critical opportunities to capitalize on the powerful potential of our world-class scientists to conduct the type of high-risk, high-reward research necessary to meet the overlapping and rapidly emerging challenges our farmers face. Testimony highlighted the importance of research to feed the growing global population of 8 billion people. But senators want to make healthier foods more abundant and affordable as well. The key now will be appropriating the dollars to do this. I'm Michelle reporting for Ag Day. All right, thanks, Michelle. We're getting a better snapshot of just who will be assisted in the future by any new farm bill. USDA releasing its latest look at America's farms and ranches. All told, it reports last year about 89% of all farms seen here in blue were small family farms, which operated 45% of all ag lands. Large-scale family farms in orange accounted for 46% of the total value of production and 27% of ag land. It also says large-scale family farms produce the majority of some, but not all, commodities, producing the most cotton, dairy, cash grains, and soybeans, while small family farms produce the majority of hay. Now, taking a look at the financials, USDA says most small family farms have an operating profit margin of less than 10%, which indicates a higher risk of financial problems, while most midsize, large, and very large farms reported higher operating profit margins last year. The outlook for the ag economy held steady last month, according to the latest survey of farmers by Purdue University and the CME Group. The ag economy barometer coming in at 102 in November, that's unchanged from October, despite a shift in underlying sentiments among the 400 ag producers polled. The index of current conditions fell three points while the index of future expectations rose two. Its authors say the survey was done immediately following the U.S. elections, but unlike the two most recent presidential elections, there 
did not appear to be noticeable sentiment swings. We continue to ask producers what their biggest concerns are for their farming operation in the upcoming year. 42% of the producers in this month's survey chose higher input costs as their top concern, followed by rising interest rates chosen by 21% of the producers in the survey, and availability of inputs and lower crop or livestock prices chosen by 14% of the producers in this month's survey. The Farm Capital Investment Index fell seven points this month to a reading of 31. That's down from 38 last month and puts it in a tie with its all-time low established a couple of months ago at that reading of 31. An official with the world's largest fertilizer company is warning the war in Ukraine could continue to impact potash supplies. Nutrient CEO Ken Seitz speaking to Bloomberg says Russia's exports are down as much as 25 percent. Those shipments impacted by trade restrictions and the war. Now he expects export challenges to persist to keep supplies from Russia and Belarus from reaching global markets. Site says the company is increasing potash production and nitrogen production to try and respond to some of the challenges. Yields in the Fields on Ag Day is brought to you by Micro Essentials from Mosaic, the science of more. Discover our proven products. Text YIELDS to 31313. The West has needed moisture and now they're getting it. Meteorologist Matt Yurisavik joins us with a look at what's coming midweek. That's right, Clinton, and that very active pattern moving on in, and that means that it's going to stay very active in the West. If we take a look at the jet stream, it's kind of a battle between two seasons. You've got the warmer air down to the south. You've got the colder air up to the north, and really all the cold, cold air is bottled up in Canada. But as we put this into motion through the middle part of the week, some of that starts to come into the Pacific Northwest. You're going to see some higher elevation snow out there, some of that making it all the way down into parts of the Sierras as we head through the end of the week and into the weekend. But then we've got a big dip in that jet stream coming as we head towards the end of the week and into early next week. That's going to reinforce the colder air in the west and then slowly push it towards the north central part of the United States. And with that is going to come a very active pattern and potentially lead to colder temperatures for much of the lower 48 as we head towards uh, the holidays. And if we look at this snowfall here, all of it going on in the west, Rockies up to the Cascades, down to the Sierras, and feet of snow still expected in the mountains of uh, California. So that is something that they will be watching for as we head over the next five or six days. And check out what rolled through Oak Bank, Manitoba. It's the Canadian Pacific Holiday Train. Mike Wickowitz capturing this moment on camera. It passed through northern Indiana near us just a few days ago, yielding a lot of holiday cheer. I'll have more on your forecast coming up. Still ahead, Tuesday was a big day for soybeans. Michelle dives into those markets next. And later, making precision ag even more precise. See what's going on at this lab in Kansas in the country. sustainable aviation fuel to really go commercial around 2026. Now that's the word from ADM's chief financial officer speaking at a conference. Vikram Luther said investment in the SAF sector will be needed to help commercialize sustainable aviation fuel. But 
he added such an investment wouldn't necessarily come from Archer Daniels Midland. Luther said, they believe there's enough economic incentive for SAF to be profitable and a viable blend for jet fuel. The Biden administration has launched a challenge to supply at least 3 billion gallons of SAF per year by the year 2030. And soybeans getting a big boost on Tuesday, surging to near two and a half month highs with support from a rally to contract highs in soy meal amid those signs of firm export demand and concerns over dry conditions in Argentina. Michelle Rook talks it over with Dwayne Bossy in Markets Now. Tuesday's market closes were mixed in the grains. Joining us with analysis is Dwayne Bussey with Bolt Marketing. And let's talk about uh, the soybean market. While we rallied strong on the heels of new contract highs in soybean meal. And let's talk about what's pushing that meal market right now, Dwayne. Yeah, I think when it comes to the meal market, I think it's the drought in Argentina. Argentina produces or exports about, well, no, they control about 40% of the global exports in the soybean meal market. So that, that's a big percentage. So if they have a drought and they have production problems there, the soybean meal market's going to rally here. And you compound that. Well, yesterday we also had some export sales flashes from soybeans to China. Uh, one to China, one to unknown. We're probably going to assume that's China as well. So kind of looks like China stepped in and bought the dip. Right. And then we've continued to see meal strong because of these meal oil spreads that have been unwound. And that's been really happening ever since the RFS a disappointment here last week, wasn't it? Right, kind of a really reverse in that trade. You know, last year people started buying the oil, selling the meal, loving that spread because of the long-term bullishness we had to biodiesel, right? And with EPA's mandates last week or their recommended mandates, people are unwinding those spreads. Uh, funds were record long soybean oil. So it's not surprising that they're getting out of those longs, but I don't know, uh, longer term, I still really like the biodiesel industry and soybean oil as well. Despite that, we could not get a higher close in either corn or wheat, and we've had a lot of fun and technical selling pressure in both corn and wheat. What's it going to take to finally maybe put a short-term bottom in those markets, Dwayne? A corn market could find a bottom first. I mean, I understand our export demand hasn't been stellar, um, but that being said, we don't have a huge supply either, so... I look for March corn to probably start to shape a U-shaped bottom here right around that 635 area where we closed yesterday. And I don't know if I've got the news to tell you, Michelle, that it's going to go flying higher, but I think we can at least form a bottom here. But on the wheat side of things, man, I just don't have much for bullish news to tell you that wheat market has to go higher, but it's, it's grossly oversold. So you could have a technical bounce at any point in time, but I don't look for a bullish story until next spring in the wheat complex. Well, let's hope for better days ahead. Thanks so much for joining us. Dwayne Bussey with Bolt Marketing. We'll have more Ag Day coming up. For marketing advice, call Bolt Marketing, a futures and options brokerage firm. Ag Day is brought to you by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator Closing Wheels provide quicker emergence and are more consistent in dry conditions than any other closing wheels. Order 12 to 16 rows today and qualify for free shipping or 20% off an end zone moisture management package. Just Matt Yurisavik joining us here, taking a look at our national forecast and starting with some of these temperatures, which we could see pretty wide springs across the country. Yeah, all the way into the Dakotas could be in the single digits where we could be in the upper 80s in southern Texas and Florida. So, yeah, big range of temperatures and we've got colder air that looks like it's going to be moving in at least to the west heading into the weekend.
And taking a look at the temperatures, you can see extremely warm air down across parts of Texas and Mexico, and that's spreading eastward through the Gulf Coast. Temperatures in the 80s all the way into Florida and 70s into Atlanta and even Wilmington, North Carolina, Dallas, Texas, and then uh, north of there, north of the first front, that's where we've got temperatures in the 50s and low 60s, and then another Arctic front bringing some even colder air up into the northern tier of the country, northern Great Lakes, and into the upper Midwest as well. Then we've got the colder air spilling into the Rockies and into the Cascades. That's creating that's higher elevation snow as well. Here's a look at the temperatures overnight and into tomorrow morning, uh, getting a little bit on the milder side, but still dew points on the higher side down in the south. That's what's allowing to keep those temperatures back up into the 50s and 60s, but getting cold across the north with the colder air continuing to drift on in behind that first system here, 30s and 40s, higher elevations, looking at some snow chances there in the west and down into the Cascades. We could be looking at feet of snow on top of what's already fallen over the past couple of weeks. That's going to come over the next few days, but here's that first front. Again, warmer air to the south, some shower chances and cloud cover right along that front. And then here's the northern system here, bringing in that reinforcing shot of some colder air. Meanwhile, out in the west, here comes the cold front. That there is going to continue to move into uh, the west and bring chances for heavy mountain snow. And then we've got this system here in the middle part of the country that's going to bring some rain along with it and snow to the north. There's that swath of snow for that mid uh, system here and then over in the west. We're going to see a lot of mountain snow and some rain out there as we head over the next few days and into the weekend. Something we'll continue to track right here on Ag Day. That's a look around the country. Now let's take a look at the weather where you live. Charleston, West Virginia, rain likely a high near 68 degrees, heading to Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, snow ending in the morning and then mostly sunny, a high of 8 degrees. Periods of snow likely in Cedar City, Utah, a high near 33. And time is ticking for you to sign up for the Case IH Holiday Giveaway. One lucky winner will be drawn each day from Monday, December 19th through Friday, December 23rd. We'll announce those winners right here on Ag Day. Those winners will receive a Case IH prize pack. Then the grand prize winner will be announced on U.S. Farm Report on Christmas Eve. They'll win a Farm All Seed Pedal Tractor. To enter, head to the website on your screen, caseihholidaygiveaway.com. Weed Warriors on Ag Day is brought to you by Fierce, a pre-emergence herbicide with three formulations. Learn more at valent.com fierce. Always read and follow label instructions. It looks like Weed Warriors will need to be in full battle mode next year. That's due to dry conditions this past year that crippled many farmers' weed control efforts in corn and soybeans. So what can you do? Agronomists tell us now is the time to come up with a plan to limit the impact on your 2023 crops. They recommend you consider whether you can use a burndown application yet this fall. Megan Anderson of Iowa State University says winter annuals such as mare's tail respond well to burndown treatments. Second, harness a high quality adjuvant surfactant. Mark Hockle of Eagle Ag Consulting says this year those products gained some support from farmers trying to extend limited herbicide products over more acres. Third, Gentry Sorensen of Iowa State University says to evaluate your herbicide carryover from this year before you've put in place your control plan next spring. He says dry conditions can extend the life of residual herbicides. And fourth, 
Consider how to work around Mother Nature. Cody Creech of the University of Nebraska Extension says pre-emergence products usually need about a half inch of rain for activation or good soil moisture if incorporated. Finally, make sure to look at weed control options beyond herbicide use. In other words, have a backup plan to your backup plan for herbicides next year. And many farmers also incorporate cover crops in an effort to control weeds. USDA releasing new results about what types of cover crops farmers are using these days. It reports cover crop mixes account for 18 to 25 percent of acres with cover crops. However, the use of single species cover crops is more common. For corn fields in 2021, almost 75 percent of acres with cover crops used a grass or small grain such as cereal rye, winter wheat, or oats. At 44 percent of acreage, cereal rye was almost twice as common as winter wheat as the cover crop on corn. Rye and winter wheat were also the most common cover crops on soybean fields in 2018. Meanwhile, winter wheat was the most common cover crop used in cotton fields in 2019. How do you measure soil moisture on your farm? See how that is going high tech and saving farmers a ton of time down the road next. Kansas often deals with little moisture, especially in the western part of the state. That's why, as Farm Journal Sign Morgan reports, researchers at Kansas State are working to become even more precise when it comes to measuring soil moisture. We can only manage what we can measure. From automation and robots to remote sensing. What we are trying to do with the group of engineers and material scientists is to work on measuring soil moisture and soil nitrogen or soil nitrate specifically. But thanks to a project funded by the Department of Energy, that work is getting a boost. We're trying to in situ or in soil quantify changes in soil moisture and soil nitrogen. Those are the two big drivers of crop production systems. While precision agriculture is a couple decades old, that technology is now getting smaller and even more precise. With that in mind, Coastal asked his engineering colleagues if there was a way to measure soil moisture across the field, but in as many places as farmers wanted. And the answer from the engineer's side is yes, we can do that. But it requires logistical, almost nightmare if I may say, because it has multiple sensors that need to be buried in the ground. With the amount of labor, time and money required to do something like that, the team came up with another idea. So what we proposed, could we develop sensors that are tiny, so they're micro sensors, that have chip on them, that are primarily sleeping most of the time. They're buried in the soil, either on the surface or subsurface area, and then you ping them as, an off, as often as you want, ping them to get a measure of the property of interest. Hundreds of sensors randomly placed in a field that translates that data precisely in ones that are less expensive and not as labor intensive. And that's what triggered the idea if we were to make these sensors on materials that degrade over time, then we don't have to worry about going back and collecting them. Each sensor has a unique ID and no battery. So they're passive sensors, meaning they're sleeping all the time. With the radio wave, we communicate with them, provide them enough energy so that they wake up for a very small, tiny fraction of a second, take the measurement, 
in the vicinity of where they are located in soil. That happens by then communicating to a cloud and relaying the information instantly. So if you're sitting in your farm shop on a computer, farmer can ping these sensors and can get an almost an instant map of the soil moisture distribution in his field. All right, thanks, Ty. And that's all the time we have this morning. Sure glad you tuned in. From all of us here at Ag Day and Clinton Griffiths, have a great day. Have fun, country.